0: Well, hello, everyone. I'm gonna start reading today from Exodus chapter two. It's one of the most provocative stories in all of scripture, and I'm gonna start in verse one. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me. And I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Well, last week, as many of you know, we kicked off a new series for the new year that we're calling So Much More. And It traces the history of God's people, the Israelites, as they went out of Egypt, came out of Egypt, and moved toward the promised land that God had for them. But as I said, there are really two stories being told here, because this is not just a history lesson. In fact, it's very, very personal for us as disciples of Jesus today. There are all kinds of lessons for us, and today... I wanna talk with you about the kind of person, the man, the woman, the young person, wherever you are in life, the kind of person that God uses. Now, Moses is sort of the case study here. He's one of the best known figures in all of history and certainly in all of scripture. God's people had been in Egypt for roughly 400 years and they had come there at the invitation of Joseph, who was sort of a savior of Egypt during a a time of severe famine. But as we saw last week uh, in chapter 1 and verse 8, it says there, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. And so this new king is getting nervous because he's watching these, what to him are very strange Israelite people, and they're multiplying like crazy. There were now about two million of them in number and they're showing no signs of slowing down. So Pharaoh wanted to reduce them to slavery in order to profit economically from them. But then when he didn't really accomplish what he wanted, uh, he he turned up the heat even more and it got even more dramatic. We read in verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to his people Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. What a horrific edict. He's basically sealing the fate of a whole generation. This is a mass genocide that he's ordering. But, but here's what we see. There were two parents, Amram and Jochebed, a godly couple who were determined that their baby boy was not going to die. They had three children. Miriam, a daughter, was their oldest. And then some years later, along came Aaron, their son. And then three years after him, Moses is born. And uh, I, I like, I kind of smile at this verse that we read earlier, speaking of, of Jacobed, his mother. It says, when she saw that he was a fine child, Is there any mother who doesn't think her child is a fine child, right? I mean, come on, let's be real. But you know, there must have been something really special about Moses, but she was determined. She hid him for three months. But after three months, he's getting louder. He's getting more active. It's becoming harder and harder. So she settles on a bold plan. I just love Jochebed and her courage. She and her husband talk together and they decide, look, we're gonna hide him. Think of the irony of this. We're gonna hide him in the very place he was supposed to die. Remember the edict? Throw the male babies into the Nile, drown them. She decides, I'm gonna hide him in the Nile River. So she fashions a little basket, makes it watertight, and launches it out into the water along the banks of the river. And Miriam, the older sister, is instructed to watch him. That's the kind of task that a lot of older sisters would probably have to do, right? And some of you can testify to that. Now, folks, God's providence is amazing. And what happens next is just one of those twists of history that is unexplainable except for the sovereignty and the intervention of God. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile with all of her attendants, and she sees this little basket among the reeds, and she gets one of her attendants to go fetch it. And then Miriam kind of pops up and says, hey, do you need a nursemaid to look after him? And in one of the most providential twists of history, Moses' own mother is paid to nurse her own child. Now, is that a good gig or why? I mean, yeah, all the moms would say, now that is a good gig. And later, it's Pharaoh's daughter who names Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So here's the deal. Moses grows up and he has, has this kind of dual identity. He knows that ethnically, yes, he is a Hebrew, but On the other hand, he's growing up as a prince of Egypt, but the sense we get is that he becomes more and more in tune with his people, the Hebrew people. In fact, we read this for one day after Moses had grown up. We don't know exactly how old he was here, but he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Now, he's a full adult at this point, all right? And it says here, as we go on and see what happened, now remember, he'd never been an enslaved person himself. So he didn't know what that felt like, but he's increasingly being sensitized to what that is. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And at that point, Moses is freaking out in his mind. He He thought he had done this without being seen. Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. So because of what he's done, Moses is now a fugitive. He ends up far away working for his future father-in-law, a man named Jethro, and he's tending sheep for a living on the backside of the desert And that's what he does for 40 long years. Wow. I mean, you talk about a twist of fortunes. He went from a life of high privilege to being a nobody, and it happened just in the snap of a finger. Now, that's a snapshot of Moses' first 80 years And believe me, we're going to come back to that in the coming weeks because his story, his story is far from over. But I want us to pause right there today. As I said last week, we're going to put the spotlight out today. And I believe there are lessons we can learn from Moses' life. In fact, I believe I'm talking to people today who really desire for God to use your life for his kingdom purposes. I don't know your age. I don't know exactly what you're going through right now or what you've been through, but I'm convinced that I'm talking to people of all different ages today, and you go, look, I'm, I really do want God to use my life. Well, listen, if that's you, I urge you to listen closely and go on this journey with us here. The first piece of advice I would give that kind of comes out of Moses' story is I would urge you to make peace with your past. Now, the reason I say that is because as an apprentice of Jesus, you know one thing for sure, God is gonna use your past, whatever it is, to make you into the person he wants you to be. Now, some of you have trouble believing that. You go, no, no, my past was horrible, man. You don't even want me to go there. Can I tell you something? no matter how horrible it was, God is gonna recycle the pain you've been through. The Apostle Paul tells us that much in 2 Corinthians chapter one, where he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Watch this part now. So we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. That's what I mean by he recycles our pay. He takes the things that you've been through and he uses it in your future and the plans he has for you. Now, as some of you may know, I I just love to read. I, I really, really love to read. Read all different kinds of books. But if you pressed me, probably the genre of book that I enjoy more than any other is biographies. Now, I don't like hagiographies. You know what that is? Hagiography. You you get a lot of these in Christian circles. And somebody will write a story about a great woman or a great man of faith, and they leave out all the bad parts. That's a hagiography. They just kind of glorify it. They just only focus on the positives. They're not worth reading. Don't even read those. You're not going to learn much from that. No, I want to read an honest biography because it shows you all the challenge and the pain in a person's life. And whether you're talking about Christians or non-Christians, when I read biographies of people that have lived a, a life that's very interesting and full, and particularly if they've been used by God in a special way, here's what I notice. They usually have a lot of pain, and often some privilege. So let's talk about that. First of all, Moses' life had a good deal of pain in it. You might not think that way at first, but he was actually born into an oppressed people group. And in order to survive, he was separated from his birth family, although his mom was able to nurse him in those early months. Now here's what I've observed. When you are separated from your roots like that, you typically struggle with finding your true identity and who you really are. I've seen this over and over and over again. I believe I've talked to literally dozens and dozens of people through the years who say, I just feel like I don't really know who I am. And often they had a disconnect from their roots growing up, from their family. I had a person say to me once, look, I can be at a party with 50 people all around, laughing, talking, having a great time. And it's like this cosmic loneliness that just pervades my soul. I said, I think it's because of that disconnect with my family growing up. And I believe I'm talking to many people right now who your past has a whole lot of pain. You'd probably say today, if you're being honest and felt you could just really get gut-wrenchingly real, I would have never chosen the family I grew up in. Too much dysfunction, too much pain, too much craziness. I would have chosen a family with a whole lot more opportunity and blessings, but I didn't get to write the script. And it's true, isn't it? You don't get to choose the family that you're going to grow up in. Moses' story, like many of you, has a great deal of pain in it. But notice the flip side. It also has a good deal of privilege in it. In fact, I think that few of us can even identify with the amount and the scope of the privileges Moses had. Think about it. He was a prince of Egypt. Oh, he didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Man, it was gold all the way. He was educated in the all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Egypt was the superpower of the day. And so when this young prince walked down the street, believe me, people da- bowed and made way. I doubt, I doubt if any of us could identify with that level of privilege. But can we be honest? Many of us grew up with privilege. Oh yeah. Many... us, grew up with stable families, perhaps with a mom and dad together, and there was actually love in the home, and they really cared for one another, and there was compassion. Some of you grew up, and you got to go to the best schools in town, and you had an opportunity to get the finest education that was available. Many of you grew up going on fine vacations and living in wonderful homes, and you never had any food insecurity. You never wondered, am I gonna be able to eat today? Or is mom or dad, you know, are they, are they gonna be here? Are they gonna, are they gonna be strung out somewhere? You never had to worry about that. You grew up with that kind of privilege, if you will. But please don't miss my point today. It doesn't matter what your past was, pain, privilege. What I'm saying is make peace with it. Here's why. Because with every, with God, every privilege has a potential downside, and every pain has a potential upside if we're willing to learn from it. Now, here's what's interesting. We have to live life forwards, don't we? But (laughs) it's kind of funny. We can only understand it backwards. And when you look back, like we're doing in this series, when you look back, See, we have the privilege of knowing how the script ended, right? When you look back on Moses' life, you say, why did he have to grow up as a son to enslave people? And I would say, it's because delivered people make the best deliverers. That's true. The Apostle Paul Puts it like this in 2 Corinthians, where he says, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. Do you see that? There's sufferings and there's comfort and they tend to go together. God uses the pain, he uses the privilege. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. So let me ask you, what do you want for your future? If you want to be a great athlete, I got advice for you. Get ready for some pain. No pain, no gain. Oh, I know it's trite, but it's still true. If you're going to be a successful athlete, you're going to have to go through some stretching and challenge and a great deal of discomfort and pain to get to that elite level. Do you want a great marriage today? Hey, I got news for you. The best marriages I know of had a lot of bumps in the road. Amen? I mean, I I don't know of what I would call great marriages where there weren't a good amount of challenges along the way. In fact, sometimes they didn't even like each other. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes they kind of wanted to kill each other, but they worked through their challenges and they made peace with it And often it involved repentance and brokenness and humility before God and each other. And they decided, hey, God's got a good future for us and God's gonna use all that past as a prologue for the future. If you're here today and you say, I truly want my life to be used by God, I just got this word for you. Get ready for some challenge because God's greatest champions have to go through some wilderness training. They say, now time out, pastor. I'm not sure I believe what you're saying. I mean, come on. Wasn't it a 40 years waste of time for Moses to have to be out there in the Midianite wilderness tending those sheep? I mean, what good is that to his future? (laughs) You know why Moses needed to spend 40 years tending sheep? Because God was gonna use him for 40 years to lead people who are a lot like sheep. And just like sheep are always getting in trouble, sheep are kind of funny. They either have the most boring life you've ever seen or they're getting in trouble. There's no in between, all right? And that's kind of like people are. And so if Moses was gonna do what God had in his future, he needed to know a lot about two things, about the desert and about sheep, because later he was gonna lead a whole bunch of people through that desert to the place God had for them. So here's my question for you, very personal. Again, I told you, we're gonna be very personal today. What experiences are you going through right now that God's using to equip you for the mission he has for you later? Everything Moses went through was equipping him in some way for what was coming up later. That's my story. When I look back on my past, I gotta tell you, I don't, I don't see a single thing that God wasted in my I grew up back in the sticks among rednecks in Tennessee. You say, well, what did that have to do with your future in New York? I've learned that New York has rednecks too, amen? I mean, there's just rednecks everywhere. They're all over the place, but watch this. Here's what's funny. But then I've also, by God's grace, had the privilege of being among some really like sophisticated people and people who have amazing pedigrees and backgrounds and education. And so I've been around people like that too. And so I feel I can hang out with the rednecks or the up and outers. You know what I'm saying? And so everything in my past has prepared me. I like what Acts chapter seven says about Moses It says, now Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. It would not be a stretch to say that he was probably the best educated man of his time because he had access to private tutors No expense was spared in his education. He probably learned all they knew scientifically about embalming. He knew all they knew about planetary motion and all that. It was probably quite a bit, honestly. And you might conclude, well, wait a minute. Why why would he need that? Have you ever considered this fact? Moses is the number one human author, human author of the best-selling book in history. You ever thought about that? the Bible's the best-selling book. Oh, I know it doesn't appear on the New York Times list because if it did, it would never leave. It would be number one, and it would never leave that spot. That's the truth. That's not hype. That's not exaggeration or hyperbole. It would never leave the number one spot, so they don't put it on there, all right? But it is the best-selling book of all time, and Moses is the number one author. He wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy, And in my particular copy of the Bible right here, I literally counted the pages. That's 190 pages, 190 pages. Now, you know, the Bible was written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And the Bible has 66 books in it. But of those 40 authors, Moses is just one of them. And he wrote more than any other human author. By the way, just for curiosity, I compared that with what the apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament. And in my Bible, Bible, that only makes up 61 pages, what Paul wrote. So Moses wrote far more than Paul or Luke or any other writer of scripture. Think about this. God was using even that so-called secular education all those things of his learning, and God was going to parlay that into productivity later in Moses' life. 190 pages, inspired by God, that we're still benefiting from today. Don't miss my point. I'm saying your past is important. Make peace with it. Oh no, Pastor! Too much pain in my past. Too much hurt. You serve a miracle-working God that can parlay that pain into productivity for his kingdom. Make peace, make peace with your past. The pain, the privilege, God's gonna use it all in a marvelous way. But here's the second thing I wanna declare. Not only make peace with your past, but I would say live fully, watch this now, live fully in the present. As humans, living in a time-space continuum, we speak of three different tenses. You know what they are, right? What are they? Past, present, and future. Right. Now get this. Healthy disciples of Jesus, I hope you're one of them, he's called us to live in the present. Because here's the problem. If we live too much in the past, here's what we end up with. We end up either being driven by regrets or nostalgia oh, I wish I had more time to unpack this. I could give you examples. I could give you illustrations and people I know who are living with regrets from the past because they just can't get their mind off of the past. And then I could show you some people who live with nostalgia about the past. Oh, they, they hate today because they always wanna hearken back to the good old days. Their problem is they have selective amnesia. Because the good old days weren't as good as you remember them being, believe me. You're just remembering the positive parts. That's the problem with living in the past. But but watch this, if you live in the future, you tend to be focused either on worry or presumptuousness. Worry, wondering what's gonna happen, wringing your hands, Oh, where's it all going? What's gonna be the result of all these things? Am I gonna have enough? What is it all gonna be like? Or, on the positive side, maybe you're presumptuous about your future. I'll bet I'm talking to some people today, and you go, yeah, man, I'm an A -A type. I'm all into the future, Pastor. I know what I'm gonna do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and 20 years from now, I've got my life mapped out. God's chuckling. God's chuckling at that. I just want you to know. I'm concerned about you that you're presumptuous here. Presumptuous. The Bible says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. By the way, we had that poignantly illustrated just last Sunday morning when one of our own church members Mark Beatty, after the nine o'clock service, walking to his car in the parking lot, collapsed with a cardiac arrest. Collapsed. He died later that day, passed away, went into the presence of Jesus later that day. And our prayers, of course, are continuing with his dear wife, Gail, and that wonderful family. But I bring up That poignant reminder because it just reminds us of the truth of this verse. You you don't know what a day is gonna bring forth. And so it's crazy to get it's crazy to get stuck in the future and being presumptuous about all that you're gonna do and all that's gonna happen in the future. Don't get stuck in the past. Please don't get stuck in the future. I'll tell you where you need to live. You're a follower of Jesus. Live in the present, because that's where your power is. Now watch this. Later, I find this interesting. We're gonna actually look at this a little bit next week, I think. Later, when Moses asked God, hey, Lord, uh, if they ask me who sent you, who are you? What is your name? What am I gonna tell them? You remember what God said? He didn't say, I was, that's the God who said it. He didn't say, I will be, future. He said, I am. Now think about this. God created the time-space continuum in which we live. He created it. He doesn't need it. He himself lives outside of that time-space continuum, but he identified himself to Moses, not as past, not as future, but as I am present, that's where God lives. God lives in the eternal now. And that's where he wants you to live. That's where your power is. That's where you're going to make courageous decisions. And, And again, Moses, our big point here is live fully in the present. And that's one of the things that's so impressive about Moses. He made courageous decisions in the present that helped shape his future. Let me to- give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Hebrews 11, we read about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures. Note that word, pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures. Note that word. So you've got pleasures and treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. We could camp out for days. That passage is so rich. But quickly, I want you to notice some of the phrases and words used there. Moses made courageous decisions in the present. It says he wasn't driven by the passing pleasures of sin, and he wasn't driven by the treasures of Egypt, and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, he rejected all the reputation that went with that. Now, think think about this for a moment. Stay with me here. This is good. This is good. Treasures, pleasures, reputation. That seems to me to be the Apostle John's definition of worldliness in 1 John chapter 2. Look at what he wrote. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, that's its pleasures. The lust of his eyes, that's its treasures. And the boasting of what he has and does. In other words, the reputation that comes with it comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man or woman who does the will of God lives forever. This is really sobering. Now think about this. There's nothing wrong with treasures. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that material things are inherently evil. I hope we all understand that. The problem is when our lives are driven by that and it becomes an idol. And so the warning is, There's very few things that can more capture our hearts more quickly and become an idol than treasures. And then pleasure, there's nothing wrong with pleasures. In fact, can I blow your mind here for a moment? Who created pleasure? God did. Ooh, that's a message that a lot of people need to get. Nothing inherently wrong with pleasure in and of itself. In fact, I love to talk to atheists who wanna ask the old evil question like, hey, If there's really a God, why is there so much pain in the world? And I like to ask them, if there's no God, why so much pleasure? Never really gotten an adequate answer to that. If no God, why so much pleasure in the world? I have no evidence, nothing that would lead me to conclude that a purely naturalistic process with no God involved whatsoever would lead us to all the pleasures we get to enjoy in this world. I just don't get that. So if no God, why so much pleasure? There's nothing wrong with pleasure. God's the author of pleasure. But if you're living your life for pleasure, you got a problem. You can easily become a God, little g, an idol in your life. And then reputation, there's nothing wrong with reputation. In fact, the Proverbs say that reputation is something to be desired, a good reputation, a godly reputation. But if your reputation is crafted and shaped and defined, by worldly success. Again, one thing you know for sure, if you're driven by these three things, you are not living according to God's agenda. So my point here is, Moses was living fully in the present because he was making courageous decisions in the present. How could he do that? Well, Hebrews goes on to tell us here. It says, for he was looking to the reward. Now, Christian, There will be many times in your life where you face a tough decision like Moses did. And you'll go, look, if I'm only got my eyes on this world, I'm gonna make that choice. But if I'm thinking about the reward ahead in heaven, I know the right way to choose. And Moses was looking to the reward. And it goes on to say here as well, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Boy, that's oxymoronic, isn't it? How can you see someone who is unseen? And yet, that's what we're called to do as disciples, to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And when we focus on the invisible God, you know what we discover? That the visible things of this world tend to pale in comparison to our great God. Do you wanna be used by God? Make peace with your past. Live fully in the present. Here's my final declaration, though. Anticipate a fabulous, oh, I want you to grab this, a fabulous future. I did not say your future would have no problems. Jesus never promised such a life. Nor did I say your future would be filled with glamour and fame and nonstop fun because it may not be. Some of God's greatest saints had very difficult lives, but you can anticipate a fabulous future because God's the author of it. And when God is the author of your steps, when He's the one that's the architect of your life, you know it's going to be fabulous because His will is good and pleasing and perfect. Exodus 2 reads, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. As I close, let me just leave you with this. As far as I can see in reading Scripture, When God sees a problem, he looks for a person to address the problem. And boy, he saw a problem. Enslaved people groaning out in their oppression, and God looked for a person, and he found him living in obscurity on the backside of a desert. And this nobody was tapped on the shoulder by God for such a time as this. I wonder, when God looks around the capital region, when he looks around our nation, you think he sees any problems? (laughs) Say, dude, are you for real right now? Problems. We got little ones, we got middle-sized ones, we got mammoth problems, which do you want? Here's my point, God's looking for a person. And I'll tell you the kind of person he's looking for. Here's the final scripture. 2 Chronicles 16. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Is that you? Is that you? Oh, God's looking for a person. He wants to work through people who've made peace with their past, who are living fully in the present. People. Oh incredible people who are anticipating a fabulous future. And if that's you, you're a person God can greatly use. There is so much more he has for you. Father, thank you for the inspiring story of Moses. So many connections to our lives today. We're so grateful. And Father, I pray for that person out there who's just your spirit has touched right now and they're, they've been struggling, wondering, do you have a plan for them? Or is this all there is? Do you have, do you have a, a future for them that is good and pleasing and wonderful? By the Holy Spirit, would you whisper to them right now, I have a plan. I have a plan for you. It's not just for Moses. I have a plan for you. I wanna use you greatly for my purposes in this world. There's nothing grander. There's nothing more honorable. There's nothing more fulfilling than becoming a part of God's agenda in this world. So Father, we thank you. We love you. And we look to you right now to do what you alone can do. In Jesus' name, amen.